0: Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth. My name is Sarab Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick
1: Solheim, the
0: COO of American Moment. And we have another fantastic episode for you guys today. American Moment is one of the few groups that's trying to stitch together what the cohesive agenda for a new or realigned right would look like, and one of the issues that You know, I spend some time worrying about isn't getting enough attention these days is foreign policy. We have to make sure that restraining the American military and directing our foreign policy towards the national interest remains a core of this new agenda for a new right. And so, to that effect, we've wanted to start bringing on some guests that will talk about those issues. Uh, And we have one of those today. John Allen Gay is the president and founder of the John Quincy Adams Society, which in some ways, although this is a little bit of a silly way to put it, is American moment, but for foreign policy, except they've been around for a couple of years now. They were founded uh, around the beginning of the Trump administration, and they're really focused on building a community on campus in Washington, D.C., and in professional circles for people who are purely focused on questions of foreign policy realism and restraint. They have a bunch of fantastic student programs, they do conferences, and they do a lot of other important work helping build out a cadre in in a lot of the same way that we're trying to build out a cadre for this broader ideological project specifically for foreign policy. John is is a absolutely brilliant person, uh, extraordinarily well-read, makes both Nick and I feel like dum-dums for sure. Um, and, and, and he really had a lot of fantastic stuff to say. In addition to his leadership at the John Quincy Adams Society, he used to be the managing editor at the National Interest, which is a great realism and restraint magazine and digital publication that, in fact, uh, Nick has written for before. Um, and he's also the co-author of a book uh, with Jeffrey Kemp on war with Iran, political, military, and economic consequences. He holds a master's degree in international relations from Syracuse University Mas- Maxwell School, and has a bachelor's degree in philosophy from the College of William and Mary. Um, I thought it was a fantastic episode, Nick. What did you make of it?
1: Yeah, it was it was great. Um, one of the things I, I I really like about John is that everything that he talks about is from you know the perspective of the national interest. So. When talking about foreign policy, you know, particularly in the national media, looking at, you know, if you've ever like watched a a panel on CNN, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it's, it's always a bunch of like lazy moralizing. It's, oh, well, if we do this, this thing might happen. And then we'd like feel bad. And I, I think John has a really good way of looking at everything through the prism of being for the American national interest. Um, we also talk a lot about history today, you know, which presidents are good and which ones are, are, are bad. Um, I forgot to move the uh, Teddy Roosevelt bust uh, before John got here, but I don't think he was too offended.
0: Yeah, for those of you who've been paying attention on YouTube, and we really recommend you do, we put a lot of hard work into making sure this production is as high quality as possible. We have a rotating... Uh, set of different little statues and tchotchkes that go up behind the speakers and also on our desk. They're really uh,
1: like Easter eggs, kind of. That's right. That's yeah. right.
0: Keep an eye out for your favorite figure of realignment. But uh, in fact, today when I came in, originally we had on the set behind John's head a bust of Julius Caesar, which I thought was a little bit incongruous with a message of foreign policy realism and restraint. So we swapped that out. <laughs> and we
1: also had to convince you to not add Napoleon to the set. You're right. Like, I, like I, 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 I would like the audience to know that.
0: Well, we. we we admire john a lot and so we didn't want to mess with him too much when he comes back the second time around we'll make sure we haze him properly but <laughs> it was a great episode we hope you guys will give it a less, uh, listen and we'll cut to john now thanks for coming on the podcast john thank you thank you for having me sir rob The first thing that we always like to talk about is sort of how people got to the point where they are now you've had sort of a windy journey throughout Washington you're actually older than you look Uh, why don't you explain how uh, how you got to the point where you're leading the john quincy Adams society.
2: Yeah. Well, I've been in Washington almost a decade now, which a lot of people don't I'm so realize. Sorry. <laughs> uh, when I I met one of the uh, big scholars uh, a few years ago and he said there's kind of a Doogie hauser thing going on here, <laughs> uh, which is probably even too old of a reference for you guys.
1: No, I get it as a fellow redhead. I get okay. It. Well, okay. <laughs> so. There you go.
2: There you go. Yeah. we got two out of three here. But uh I've uh, I started out in the think tank world. I was at the Center for the National Interest. I was in, in as an undergrad. I took a bunch of IR, IR courses. I was really excited about realism and was slowly realizing there's not a real uh, not a lot of realism in Washington foreign policy circles. And so when I was looking in grad school for internships to apply for in the summer and I go to their website and it says America's realist voice on the front page of the Center for the National Interest website, I said, boom, I want to go there. So I probably wrote a really good cover letter (laughs) and uh, I was interning there and I was working on a Middle East project related to Iran, uh, related to the nuclear program of Iran, the military option against the nuclear program. And I overheard. The uh, the young woman who I worked for, uh, my immediate supervisor, talking about how she was leaving, uh, she was getting hired out, and so I went to her boss and said, "Hey, I'd love to apply for this role." You know, nobody asked me to do it; nobody uh, even told me that it was happening. I literally just overheard it, and ended up uh, getting the role. Uh, you know, I think it helps to be someone that people know. And that was pretty much the story of the rest of my time at that organization at the Center for the National Interest and then the National Interest, their magazine, where I ended up uh, at the end of my time there as the managing editor of the publication, primarily working on the web side of the publication. uh, I was always falling diagonally upward where someone would leave and I guess they just couldn't find anybody better. And so I ended up uh, being the one that they selected. That's awesome. And then in 2016, you know, as the foreign policy debate was heating up, the space was opening up for conversation. I was actually at the speech that Trump gave on foreign policy at the Mayflower Hotel on April uh, April something in 2016, before he was finalized as a candidate. Uh, and there was a lot of great stuff in there, a lot of realist messaging, which I think got a number of people in the realist community pretty excited I caught wind of this idea that had been percolating out there uh, of having a, a youth organization, a professional pathway into the national security space that is dedicated to realism and restraint. And I was really excited uh, about that and got plugged in with the people who were looking at it and said, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to head this up. And so that's how we got rolling at the John Quincy Adams Society, been there ever since, expanded onto a lot of campuses. You know, we're really trying to build the next generation of foreign policy leaders for this country and to build it with people who favor a more measured U.S. approach. And that includes progressives, conservatives, libertarians, all kinds of people who, uh, you know, if if you're in the younger generations, you've seen a lot of failure in foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy in your lifetime. And so we find it's a pretty easy message to sell.
1: So let's rewind a couple years to another president, John Quincy Adams. Sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what he kind of stood for and, and how that guides the, the mission, uh, you know, and founding principles of your organization. Can you kind of tell us more about
2: how that uh, influences your the way that you guys work? Absolutely, John Quincy Adams is more known for his extensive diplomatic career, and I think that's what we're really pulling to. His presidency was was a single term presidency, he lost to Jackson. Uh, you know, not a particularly memorable president, but he was Secretary of State before that for Monroe. He served as an ambassador to a number of countries: the Netherlands, uh, Prussia, Russia. Uh, I think there were one or two others in there: England, uh, the UK. And over the course of that career, he was formative in shaping the direction of early American foreign policy, which looked very different from our foreign policy today. There was a, uh, a lot of use of force, a lot of expansion, but it was aimed toward the development of our own country. It was internal or to areas that we saw as internal. And we were trying to stay out of all of the conflicts uh, in Europe among the European powers who were the big dogs in that day so that we could continue growing. And those powers kept trying to ensnare us in their conflicts, mainly the British and the French trying to draw us in, get us to be on their side. There was a really formative episode for JQA in 1793, 1794 or so where a French representative came to the United States, didn't even present himself uh, at the Capitol, started going around like South Carolina, trying to recruit people to become uh, privateers against British fleets, which was a a major violation of America's policy of neutrality between Mm -hmm. France and Britain. And I think this showed a lot of early American uh, foreign policy thinkers, including Adams, including George Washington, that Countries are basically out for themselves, even though in the case of France, we saw their revolution as having some ideas in common with ours, and there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm among ordinary people for it. And so that formative idea that countries are ultimately going to be looking out for their own interests really informs a lot of Adam's own thought. And he says, look, we stand for certain values in the world, but ultimately we are responsible for ourselves – and we would actually endanger our values and our national project if we end up getting in a lot of these uh, these conflicts involving the European powers, if we try to expand ourselves, uh, particularly all across the Western Hemisphere, if we try to spread our system of government at the point of a bayonet uh, into South America, et cetera. Uh, he, so he said he, he has this famous speech while he's secretary of state. Uh, on July 4th, 1821, delivered to to Congress, where he says that America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And that's, that's really the line everybody remembers. The whole speech is brilliant, but the, the next few lines, he talks about how we are the well-wisher to all, but we are the champion and vindicator only of our own, that the purpose of American military force is something that uh, has to be closely tied to the national interests, and I would say the vital national interests of the American people and the American nation, and that we shouldn't be sticking our troops in all these other conflicts all over the planet. You know as a as a military brat that really speaks to me because the people that are going and fighting in these conflicts are people like members of my family you know i I know what it's like to have a member of my family overseas in harm's way you know whenever the phone rings to be sitting there thinking is this going to be a casualty notification whenever someone knocks on the door you know getting nervous and so that really spoke to me that our military needs to be deployed in service to our national interests, not the national interests of other countries mm-hmm.
0: I find that John Quincy Adams is is really the figure that that restraintist and realist point to and it it, it sort of feels like there, there's a very thin, you know, a layer at the bottom of the barrel and, and he's basically it and there's really no one else to name organizations or initiatives off of. Are there any other leaders that uh, in American history specifically that sort of stand out as as um, as great representatives for this way of thinking about foreign policy?
2: Sure. Well, George Washington is another. And I I think you can make a decent case from history that Washington was uh, influenced by Adam's own ideas, even though Adams was much, much younger than Washington. Really, all of the founders, I I think, were a model for this uh, of of a, a more restrained vision of foreign policy. Pretty much everybody before McKinley kind of got it and kind of looked at Washington's farewell address. Which talked about st- also about staying out of these European entanglements, and said, you know what, this is a good model for us. They read it every year in Congress. I think they still do that, but they must just not pay attention to the foreign policy parts of it. And so, th- really, anybody from that generation, uh, a friend of mine is a big fan of Glo- Grover Cleveland, uh, who opposed uh, our expansion into Hawaii. Uh, you know they're You could really, again, point to anybody in that period as a great model.
1: I feel a little bad for having the statue of Teddy right there. Maybe a little, (laughs) maybe a little triggering for this episode. But (laughs) I'm actually reading this book right now. I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head, but it's about um, you know uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge and. I'm forgetting his first name, but uh, Hearst, the newspaperman, in like the rush into the Spanish American War, um, and basically how um, it was recommended to me by by Jake, um, uh, our third co-founder, and it's and it's basically about how you know all these men of high society uh, kind of came to the realization that like. Oh, we've expanded as far west as we can go, uh, and they were feeling idle. You know, they were they were prone to, um, like this is pretty well documented in Teddy's life. Like he was prone to nervous fits because he couldn't, you know, get out west and get away from like the stress and that sort of thing. So he constantly agitated towards war. Um, like this, uh, this this book it has like a, uh, excerpts from all of his letters. I mean, he was writing to several different people several times a day saying man, if I can only just get people to to go to war with Spain and then I can lead a regiment down there and I can like get the glory that I've been searching for. And a large part of the reason why he wanted to do it was because uh, his father during the civil war had paid uh, like volunteers to go on his behalf. And he always felt like a lot of shame, I guess, on behalf of his father that, that his uh, that he wasn't like honorable enough to defend his country during the civil war. Um, so I know that there's a lot of, and listen, like I'm, I'm, I'm a big, uh, you know, I'm very guilty of this, of, of, uh, idolizing Teddy Roosevelt, but I think it's, it's important to have a nuanced, um, view of him as, you know, someone who did a lot of great things, but also, uh, you know, at times had a, uh, misguided view, uh, on foreign policy, I guess, that's kind of a rant and not a question. but uh, but I mean, what what is your kind of perception of after McKinley where where it went, where things went wrong?
2: I think it's during the World War II period where you see the real change because uh, you know, to speak of Roosevelt, you know, he really expanded the interpretation of the Monroe Doctrine from Europe doesn't get to come over here to we're going to manage a lot of stuff in Latin America, which is a, a, a real transformation of the original Monroe Doctrine, which was also written by by John Quincy Adams. Um, the the Coolidge administration actually clawed that back a bit. They had a, a very long document called the Clark Memorandum which essentially restored things a bit more to a, uh, a less uh, assertive posture in Latin America with regards to the Latin American powers, the powers indigenous to this hemisphere. Um, but then you see through World War II, in the early days of World War II, there's a great book uh, called Tomorrow the World by Stephen Mortime over at the Quincy Institute, a uh, historian who has argued pretty convincingly that a lot of the national security elites in our country began to feel that we needed to be managing the world and leading global order over the course of 1940, 1941, 1942, very early in the conflict, realizing that Britain is going to get knocked out. Uh, that this was where we started shifting in this mindset from let's stay out of all these conflicts overseas to. Let's be involved in them and try to have a thumb on the scale and shape them to our liking or prevent them from happening, make factions we like win, the ones we don't like lose, being really involved and, quote unquote, engaged to use a popular DC euphemism uh, in a lot of these affairs.
0: (laughs) That apparatus and that mindset that you describe has over time congealed into something that people call the blob. What is the blob? uh, in, in your own words,
2: I would say it is the people and process that make up the establishment consensus on foreign policy in Washington. Every policy community is going to have consensus processes. And I think it's much stronger in foreign policy because we are so removed from pressure from voters. A lot of voters vote about taxes, healthcare, things like that. So there's much more of a tendency to have two political elites rather than one, you know, aligned with different factions presenting substantively different ideas. But there's basically a consensus among a lot of the higher level people in Washington that we need to be highly involved in the world uh, from a security perspective, that we need to have a whole lot of troops abroad, that we need to have a whole lot of commitments to other countries that if they get attacked, we'll go to war you know, that that we need to be sending carriers and stuff off the coasts of all the the countries that we disagree with, that we need to be having lots of disagreements with other countries uh, in fairly far away regions that might not be all that capable of harming us directly. That's what I would say the consensus is, and that consensus has a social reality, namely that if you disagree with it, especially strongly, even though there are great reasons from history and from scholarship to disagree with it, that you start to become a bit of a persona non grata in Washington. I think that was more true probably 10 years ago when I first came to Washington than it is now. There's been a lot of space opened up for debate. I think also the structure of the international system is forcing people to have a more honest conversation about the limits on American power and also the limits on American interests. We just can't afford to be all things to all people all the time. Uh, now that uh, now that we have a rising uh, potential peer competitor in China, now that we've spent the last two decades at war in the Middle East. And I, I think the blob is reacting to this shift by trying to hold on to its power or make small accommodations where it'll say, okay, yeah, we're not going to do dumb wars anymore, but we're get- still going to have plenty of, again, engagement, uh, which always translates into heavy military presence, heavy diplomatic presence, heavy involvement in other countries' politics, Uh, the kind of things that can expose us to risk, provoke resentment, all of that, that put us in the middle of a lot of stuff that we are just not well-placed to understand. That's what I'd say the blob is.
1: So you mentioned other countries' politics. That kind of triggers a follow-up question for me. How does the intelligence community play into all of this?
2: Well, they their mission, uh, I think there's there's a twofold answer to this question. Their mission is to provide information to our policymakers so that they can make informed decisions. Uh, and whenever you build a capacity like that, you end up building a, a capacity that is also capable of... Of covert action, of doing things secretly in other countries, because that's what you need to do to gather really interesting information. And so I, I think the intelligence community can sometimes be a reinforcer for the blob. Uh, the, a lot of the people who have risen to the very highest levels will have at least some sympathy for, uh, for the this expansive managerial account of what the US role in the world should be. They also have a unique advantage in the communications and politics world, which is they have secret information that they can say, well, if you really knew, or they can selectively leak stuff that gets into the press and shapes narratives. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a big problem. It's also illegal when they do it. Uh, you know, We had a, uh, a member of the, uh, the Obama administration admit in Politico at the very beginning of this week to sharing secrets with his wife, which is, I think, a felony. Uh, And he's probably not going to face any consequences for that, which is another part of having a uh, having a blob in Washington. It's that people can get involved in all kinds of failures, all kinds of illegal stuff. And if you buy this consensus, you can still uh, ultimately continue being a player. There are people who have admitted uh, or pled guilty to lying to Congress who still end up heading up major initiatives, signing prestigious letters uh, here in Washington within the foreign policy circle, and we'll have people on the other side of the aisle defending uh, their status, defending their uh, right to be appointed as a policymaker.
0: It's one of those things where it, it this, the social component of it is so interesting, right? Because it is only an environment that is capable of closing ranks as intensely as I think the foreign policy community is, is so capable of doing. That could make it so that felony, you know, concealing information from Congress or lying to them is basically okay and, and does not make you persona non grata in this space. But if you defer even slightly in some ways from the consensus of the last 40 years, that makes you a pariah. I mean, it, 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 is, is there any... Is there any sense that does the blob realize that it exists? Do people who are sort of rank and file members within that community realize how cloistering that environment is or are they sort of oblivious to it?
2: If somebody really hates the term blob, they're probably in the blob. Just like if somebody really hates the term endless wars or forever war, yeah. they are probably part of the consensus yeah. that supported that, or, or
1: making money off of it. <laughs> also,
2: also true. Yeah, I think uh, you know there definitely is a uh, that social reality there, and there's an incredible lack of self-awareness. You know, we saw a, a uh, an incident a couple of weeks ago at the Atlantic Council where a couple of scholars wrote a pretty traditional realist analysis of the situation in Russia and Ukraine, and basically said, hey, human rights are important, but they could be an obstacle to us getting other things that are higher priorities done in our relationship with Russia, especially if we push really hard on them. That is a that is a classic realist take. You could find it anywhere uh, for decades ever since human rights has become a major plank in our foreign policy. And yet uh, another center at that think tank uh, had something like 20 scholars write a letter denouncing, uh, denouncing this opinion uh, and saying that they disassociated themselves from it. Uh, that, that was what the letter said. It was very short. And uh, after they released it, they were all kind of tweeting self-righteously about it. You know, that it had to be done. They talked to Politico and said it was a slapdown, that it really needed to happen. Uh, they told some of these scholars to go back to the Cato Institute, You know, because the, the Cato Institute has a, uh, a more uh, restrained perspective on foreign policy. And, uh, you know, I think this was a real example of the blob in action. And there was a similar example a few weeks later. Uh, Biden tried to appoint a, uh, a, a realist to his NSC to be his director for Russia. Uh, and, you know, and, and this guy's a, a fairly moderate realist. He does not have radical views on Russia. You know, he doesn't see them as a potential partner. He says, like, look, we just need to limit our competition with them to certain spheres. That was uh, way too much for these folks. And people started leaking against him. People started saying he was like a Russian agent or something like that. I mean, this is this happens like several times a year. And it is remarkable, it really, especially in the Russia policy community, what people will say about their colleagues behind the cloak of anonymity. And it is in an effort to destroy people who are disagreeing with the blob. And I say this, having said earlier, and I, I still believe that things are better than they were like 10 years ago, because this was constant and there was much less pushback. The thing at the Atlantic Council, there was a lot of uh, strong negative reaction to that uh, among other think tank scholars saying essentially, uh, the point of think tanks is to think you ought to be having disagreements with your colleagues and you don't need to be sitting there saying I'm going to disassociate myself with these views. Uh, and Because of that, I think it shows that the Overton window has opened a bit and restrainers and realists are more welcome in the foreign policy discourse now, which is a a good uh, positive development. Well, and that's the
1: other thing too, with all these like security state leaks and that sort of thing where like, you know, someone would anonymously leak something and then the person that was leaked about was called like a Russian agent or like a Russian puppet. Speaking of Overton windows, right? Like I think it really kicked that open to where now anyone who disagrees, you know, gets called a a, a Russian puppet or a um you know a tool of Putin or or, or
0: whatever. I've been, Especially under a Biden administration.
1: Yeah, I know. I I was following the um you know the 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 NSC uh thing pretty pretty closely. Uh, so I used to I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, uh, and you and I were discussing it before the show, but. Um, I used to do a lot of work on uh, Arctic policy here in the United States. Um, you know, some of that dealt uh, with uh, United States uh, relations in the Arctic vis-a-vis Russia. Um, so, since you brought it up, would like to would like to talk about uh, Russia. What is, you know, how do you feel about kind of this traditional mindset in Washington, uh, this Cold War mindset that? Russia is still this big like geostrategic threat, you know, our number one enemy. Um and 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 you know, what would you kind of suggest uh the way moving forward with Russia or or against Russia or whatever um
2: is. Well, look, they they certainly are a threat. You know, they have thousands of nuclear weapons so by definition they are an existential threat to the United States but the thing with existential threats is there are different ways to manage them because we have a whole lot of nuclear weapons too you know the, we can say a lot about their capabilities they clearly have uh, have an interest in uh, covert action in espionage uh, which is pretty normal for high-level countries to be spying on each other. Uh, they've done some pretty remarkable, uh, not good things in their neighborhood, uh, interfering with the sovereignty of countries like Estonia, like Montenegro, uh, like Ukraine, most most obviously, like Georgia. But because they're a great power, they also have the ability to resist us pretty effectively. That's pretty much what makes a great power a great power. If you were to listen to a scholar like John Mearsheimer, it's the ability to resist another great power. And what that means is that we have to take that into account in our policy making. We don't, we don't have to like what they do. We don't have to agree with what they do. We don't have to agree with their values, with their system of government. You know, It's, it's highly corruptive. It's, it's a bit of a mafia state. And yet, we have to live in a world that they live in. And we can do that through a lot of confrontation. Uh, and ultimately provoke a lot of these negative responses or we can focus much more narrowly on our national interests. Uh, to speak of Ukraine again or Estonia, these are places where our national interests are extremely narrow like we would like those countries to be free and if they you know are oriented toward the west we might support some of their development but, they are not a vital interest to us they are not on our border they are on russia's border what happens there is a lot more important to the russians than it is to us and that difference of stakes is a huge structural problem that we've been trying to overcome you know you follow the think tank discussion scene They are full of uh, war games and scenarios and planning of trying to figure out how we could defend the Baltic states, which are members of NATO that are right on Russia's border that have a combined population of like 6 million. Uh, They are really a uh, a grain of sand on the scale of global geopolitics. They are not uh, a group of countries that I would argue we should be defending at all. And yet we are sitting here talking about having uh, different types of nuclear weapons and different force postures that could be pretty aggressive uh, in that area because we see it as in our interests to defend them. And so I think really it needs to start at home. Foreign policy starts at home and it starts with us reevaluating what our core national interests are. And I would say in a region like Europe, it's a balance of power. It's nobody running the show. It's multiple players hopefully working together peacefully with one another. We get to trade with them a lot. Everybody wins. It's great. But ultimately, we just need nobody to take over. And Russia is not actually about to do that. Uh, Europe is more populous, more prosperous. Uh, better armed and certainly capable of being way better armed than the Russians. Uh, and in a lot of ways, the reason the Europeans are so weak is because we provide security for them. Uh, you know, The Germans were showing up at exercises a few years ago with uh, broomsticks painted like guns. I mean, this is, this is the former terror of Europe that has been reduced to spending almost nothing on its defense. They have a lot of broken tanks. They can barely put a lot of their aircraft in the air. They had I think at one point no operational submarines when they basically invented submarine warfare, uh, you know it, it, it's kind of a joke, and it's because they're uh, they're living in our basement really as a power, mm-hmm. and we need to kick them out.
1: I think that's something that's really interesting, you know, about the Baltic states. I hadn't really thought of this, like the population only being six million people, like that's smaller than the state of Minnesota. Like what? Like Minnesota has eight million people, like for for reference, and. Everything that we've been, you know, talking about for years about, like, potentially, you know, getting ready to go to war with Russia over three countries with populations smaller than, like, the like one of our states. Mm-hmm.
0: That's just very interesting to me. Yeah, it puts it in context, right? I mean- yeah the United States is one of the largest countries in the world and so when people in the United States think of how big country countries are they're like oh something maybe a little bigger maybe a little smaller than the United States that's just not true like most countries are smaller than American states um the the Russia issue I think is 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 really interesting right because it's it's one that I think belies the um survivorship bias maybe the wrong problem here but when you have the same, the, 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 maybe the wrong term, actually, um, when you have the same people leading the foreign policy space as did during the Cold War and the immediate aftermath, I mean, you know, Russia is the nail and they're going to keep beating it with a hammer. Are you starting to see a little bit of a generational shift in how foreign policy thinkers approach Russia as, as one generation replaces the other? Or have they been very good at, at maintaining Uh, that mindset as a status quo, even in subsequent generations.
2: I think by and large, there is a uh, a divide between millennials and down and Gen X and up. Because if you're Gen X or older, you have a lot more living memory as a policy person of things like the 1989 revolutions, the spread of democracy in Eastern Europe during uh, the mid to late 1990s, uh, maybe a bit less active memory of how bad things got in Russia during that same period during uh, liberalization, which kind of affected how a lot of Russians view uh, the prospect of being a totally Western style society. Uh, So there's definitely a generational divide because again, for a lot of millennials and younger, it's endless war and endless confrontation that is the foreign policy that we know. But that said, the institutions in Washington uh, are largely blob aligned. And so there's going to be ideological diversity in any generation. And I think people who line up more with blob perspectives have better prospects, uh, as long as the blob is the stronger player. And so there is a, uh, there's still a structural problem, even though I think there is a bit of a generational shift happening.
0: The next region that I want to talk about is, is China. Um, this, I think, is the most critical issue uh, for people who are in, in Nikonai's camp, You know, these more realigned conservatives, to be very careful about. Because the framing on China that people like President Trump presented over the last couple of years was, I think, primarily oriented around questions like our trading relationships. What is happening now, I think, is that the blob... Is starting to bring its framing on the China issue um, into the fore. And there's a real risk of what I think was an important reevaluation of our relationship with China um, turning into a casus belli for war. What is it that, how, how do you think about the China issue uh, as it relates to the right, as it relates to foreign policy more broadly in Washington? And what are you concerned about?
2: Well, I really liked the way uh, in American Moments principles that you framed the issue where you talk about them as more of an economic competitor than as a strictly a security competitor. Now, China is certainly a very capable security competitor. And I think as we are building our military and thinking about our security, they're kind of the pacing challenge. They're the ones that we should be keeping an eye on. Their capabilities are the ones that we should be lining up our capabilities against. Uh, you know, we should be focusing more on naval power because the Pacific is mostly made of water, uh, whereas a lot of our uh, our effort has been going into the Middle East and Europe, which is mostly made of land. And so we've been putting a lot into our army uh, and our Marine Corps uh, in order to fight in those places. So we do need a shift. Uh, in the alignment uh, of our forces. But more broadly, I think the question at the geostrategic level about China is how big it can get, what it wants, but also what it is capable of taking. And a lot of us are bringing a historical model of europe and european security and middle eastern security into the way that we think about china and its potential for expansion and if you look at europe from a uh, from a geopolitical standpoint the whole northern half of europe is called the northern european plain it's wide it's open it's long you can pretty much go on flat terrain all the way from paris past moscow and what that means is that's, that's good terrain for warfare. If you've got tanks or cavalry back in the old days, you can do a lot of uh, rapid gains, rapid conquests in that area. And so it's, a, uh, it's naturally going to be a highly securitized uh, region uh, when there are multiple powers competing over it. And it's going to be harder to get security in that environment. The Pacific looks a lot different. Uh, It's it's made out of water again. It's big and open. There's a lot of ocean. And the thing is, it's really hard to project power consistently across the ocean, especially if the ocean is contested, which we happen to have the world's best navy. And I think that we should continue to aspire to doing that. And a lot of China's potential targets, it's going to have to either go through mountains uh, and cross through mountains Full of people that don't like them into lowlands, full of people that don't like them. Places like Vietnam, yeah, uh, or
0: literally the largest mountains in the world in the Himalayas. <laughs>
2: yes, yeah, it, and you know, you read about some of the confrontations that India and China had uh, several months ago. A lot of these places barely even had roads. Uh, you had to move your forces up there, like, for weeks to acclimate them to the environment. You know, these are not easy areas to project power through. It's the same story with oceans. You know, you get a couple submarines, you get some anti-ship missiles, which are getting really good these days. And it's going to be pretty difficult to, for instance, mountain invasion from China of Japan or of the Philippines or of Taiwan even. Uh, and so they're actually constrained a lot by their geography. And we need to recognize that. I mean, also those other states that they are adversaries with, those states have really strong incentives to look out for their own security. And uh, we can leverage that rather than uh, trying to be the leading partner in every alliance, which is often what we've done. We essentially have Korea and Japan as junior partners in their own defense. In particular, Korea, uh, there is still a unified command structure where in the event of a war, Korean forces uh, and US forces in Korea are both under the command of a US commander. Uh, It's something not a lot of people outside the Korea specialist community know, but it it shows just how a lot of this uh, primacist uh, hegemony posture in global affairs is as much about having our allies be weak so we don't have to sweat what they're going to do on their own as it is about keeping our enemies from getting too strong. And I think that that's a, uh, a mentality that forgets that self-interest that states have in their own preservation. So we need to be leaning into that. You know, I, uh, I like the idea of having more cultural competition with China where we're saying, hey, our, our model is better. And trying to prevent, for instance, Hollywood Studios from saying, yeah, we're going to make, you know, Mulan over in Xinjiang and we're going to have thank yous in the credits to the local security bureau. Uh, You know, I I think that that's appalling. And ultimately, uh, I I hope that the American people will reject it. But I think that that's different from pursuing a Cold War style high level security competition with China, uh, which I I think is really, uh, really not necessary.
0: Taiwan specifically is interesting to me because what the blob will say is that Taiwan is at imminent risk of a land invasion. Uh, you sounds like you aren't as concerned about that. Why is why is that not as concerning as as people may make it out to be? And what should our
2: broad approach with Taiwan be? Well, I think that's there's definitely a prospect that China will attempt something against Taiwan. You know, that they could try to turn them into Hong Kong too. Uh, where they have them in some level of political subordination uh, that might involve military elements. I think one of the greater dangers that would lead to that happening would actually be uh, U.S. and Taiwanese activities that are provocative, you know, that are suggesting, uh, hey, Taiwan's going to go independent. Uh, China has no hope of, uh, of ever reclaiming it or being reunified with it. Uh, which I certainly hope it's never reunified with China uh, because they have a much better system of government, particularly after the uh, late 80s, uh, than the People's Republic of China does. But we need to be talking about our own national interests here. We would very much like Taiwan to be free, but we can live in an Asia where uh, China has been able to uh, to take them. I, I think that the, uh, the military questions in the region get a little bit tougher. Uh, you know, It would give China something of a better position, but it's not necessarily going to be the beginning of a Chinese empire because they still have all these problems if they try to go after Korea or Japan, which are the real engines of the region, uh, or after Australia, which is also really far away and really capable uh, after Vietnam, etc., Ultimately, what we need to be do, doing is leaning on some of these powers uh, to stick up more for their own defense. In the case of Taiwan, we've been providing them a lot of these high-end weapons that, as far as a lot of experts can tell, they're basically just buying in order to stay on our good side because they're uh, they industrially valuable for us, you know, to sell them, for instance, tanks, which if, if you've looked at a map of Taiwan, it's <laughs> mountains and a lot of uh, very wet lowlands that are not that great for armored warfare and urban areas, which are also not that great for for armored warfare. And so us selling them tanks, us selling them high-end fighter aircraft angers the Chinese, but actually does not do a lot to make Taiwan that much safer. And I've heard gossip uh, that the Taiwanese tanks that they have are not very well maintained, not very operational, uh, which... Would be consistent with that theory that they're just doing it to stay on our good side. So we should be encouraging them to become really prickly and hard for China to swallow. Uh, getting uh, getting anti ship missiles, air to surface missiles, uh, anti tank missiles, preparing to fight urban warfare, preparing preparing to fight on the beaches, which they've already done a lot of, uh, making it so that they're really hard to conquer, and so that the the People's Republic knows that if they try to subordinate Taiwan, uh, that it's going to be a continuous bleeding sore for them, uh, rather than an easy reabsorption of a, uh, just another province. That's, I think what a better Taiwan posture looks like. They can have as many weapons as uh, fall off the back of a truck in the United States. Uh, not necessarily an American defense guarantee, which is what a lot of folks in the Taiwan area are pushing for right now.
0: Yeah. It, uh, it, it strikes me, you know, a, a clever Taiwanese diplomat ask, uh, you know, acting in their national interest would realize that a really good way to keep the U.S. engaged in your region is to keep Raytheon contractors really happy. And so to purchase up as much of the defense equipment from them as humanly possible. Um, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, what are some of the things that Taiwan could be doing to make themselves much pricklier? And is there, is there any sense of, of sort of a, a new regional block? being formed in that that part of the world that is capable
2: of counteracting China on their own terms as opposed to relying on on American hegemony. It's a perennial problem in Asia that there's not a lot of uh, regional cooperation among the major powers, particularly Japan and Korea. They've they've uh, they've got a history to put it lightly. <laughs> uh, Korea was colonized by Japan. I, I used to live in Korea, and I would walk by these uh, statues of people who had been killed uh, fighting the Japanese. Uh, you know, it's still a, an ongoing issue uh, that Japan has not really. Uh, gone through its historical legacy and kind of atoned for some of those things in the way that say Germany has. And so there's a lot of friction there. Uh, I think a a realist would say, hey, these states have very strong reasons to cooperate. And if the United States is sitting on top of them and saying, we're going to defend you no matter what, that actually reduces those reasons to cooperate. I think the lack of an Asian security system uh, is partly Uh, Partly a story of the United States. I I think in Taiwan's case, they really need to be hardening themselves, Uh, building a highly capable military. I think a lot of it is going to come down to uh, sensors and shooters that they need a lot of uh, radar systems that can be looking out uh, into the Taiwan Strait. Uh, that can be looking up over the Taiwan Strait and shooting at things that are coming uh, coming at them and having a lot of them because the Chinese are going to be taking a lot of those out. Uh, they have a pretty advanced ballistic missile force, for example, that we can assume would be used uh, pretty heavily against the Taiwanese. And so if you can uh, really just make it so that it's too costly uh, for China, uh, I think that that's going to make it uh, much less likely that they would attack because they see it. Uh, as a political legitimacy issue in the case of the PRC uh, to reintegrate Taiwan. But they also don't want to lose a big war with Taiwan. That's also a political legitimacy issue. And I think making it so that that's the case uh, is the key. But again, we can do that with the Taiwanese rather than doing it for the Taiwanese.
1: Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit about some of the rhetoric that goes around, uh, you know, about you know both China and Taiwan, but also in the Middle East. You know, I a lot of the 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 feedback that you get from people when you say, "Hey, we shouldn't be, you know, involved in this war because of X reason." You know, the the response is almost always, "Oh well, how could you? Like you you don't care about the humanitarian reasons, you know, behind this war. You don't care about
2: these people or whatever." Um, what do you say to that to that critique? I think one, great powers have to make very tough decisions. The international system is highly complicated, highly competitive, and that means that cut and dry moral questions are often uh, not going to be as cut and dry as they seem. Uh, Afghanistan is a really great case of that. You know, The Taliban is absolutely awful. I, I fully agree with that. But we are not exactly uh, allied with the uh, the greatest government in history in the government of Afghanistan. <laughs> it is extremely corrupt. A lot of that is our money. Uh, there's a lot of involvement in the drug trade. Uh, you know the big structures in Kabul where politically connected people live that they'll call poppy palaces. Um, And there are also a lot of political figures who have been absorbed into the Afghan system that are essentially warlords. They were warlords before the Taliban got knocked over. They still are warlords now. Uh, I'd particularly point to uh, one of their vice presidents, General Dustum. I know this is a family podcast, so I won't repeat all of the things that he has done that are also pretty darn serious human rights violations. Uh, And so I think we need to realize that we are operating in a morally complex world and often Uh, These are not going to be cases of black and white. And by the way, war is also a moral question. Uh, Fighting in conflicts can be just, but it still has a lot of moral costs to it. That's always going to be the question whether you're choosing to go to war, whether you're choosing to continue to go uh, to be in a war, whether you're choosing to give a country a defense guarantee that you will go to war if they get attacked. Uh, That check is going to be cashed in blood. And we can choose whether it's going to be American blood uh, or somebody else's blood. And it's unfortunate if it's anybody's blood. But as a country, we have a responsibility toward our own citizens and our own military uh, to only use that in the case of our most vital interests. So I think these these narratives of moral simplicity about really any conflict abroad uh, are often uh, eliding the fact that war is a is an ugly business.
1: Well, there are crocodile tears too. Like I, like I doubt that a lot of these people, you know, uh, actually care about the morality surrounding our, um, you know, foreign entanglements for, for a lot of them. It's a, uh, it's a lifestyle of not being held to account, um, and not, you know, basically being held accountable for the things that they've espoused, you know, over the last, uh, couple of decades, basically in
2: short, uh, they don't want to admit that they were wrong. There's an element of that, although I'd actually push back a little bit. I think a lot of these folks genuinely believe it and genuinely believe in uh, in spreading human rights, which again, human rights are really good. But uh, there's often a, uh, a selectivity in how folks think about it, which I think is not often very conscious. It's hey, we're gonna. It's an ugly world. We're gonna have to make some compromises with some human rights violators. So yeah, we're friends with Saudi Arabia, but we're enemies with Iran. And from a human rights standpoint, uh, I'm not sure you can make a case that that is a categorical distinction that Saudi Arabia is just categorically better than Iran on human rights. Mm. And yet you'll hear a lot about human rights in Iran and not a lot about human rights in, in Saudi Arabia. And it's a kind of uh, self excusing actually as a as a great power to say, hey, we have some things we do out of necessity. They're not who we really are, but the the stuff that the other guys do. That are, uh, that are bad. Those, are, those show who they really are, that they aren't also making uh, ugly, complicated decisions. Mm.
0: Speaking of Saudi Arabia and Iran, what is your assessment of the state of play in the Middle East right now? Coming out of the Trump administration, the Abraham Accords, we're now looking to a potential withdrawal from Afghanistan. What does the state of play look like? What's concerning you right now? And, and where's there a cause for hope?
2: Well, I think the Abraham Accords are actually a, uh, a, a great cause for hope. You know, my, uh, I'm on record from several years before them that I think uh, for the U.S. to get less involved in the region, one of the things that would be really helpful is increased cooperation between the states that are unfriendly toward Iran, Israel, uh, the, Saudi, the Saudis, the UAE being the main players there. So I think it's a very helpful development that we should be continuing to encourage. I think it's a, a major accomplishment on our part. I mean, a lot of it was already happening because they have this com- common enemy uh, that really helped it along. But yeah, we should be doubling down on that. But uh, beyond that, I think uh, there are reasons for us to be optimistic that we can continue uh, pulling back from the region, shifting our energies toward home or toward the Pacific if we uh, can't uh, shift all of it home. Uh, you know, the. The main challenge in the region, just like in Europe uh, and, and really any major prosperous populous region, uh, is we don't want one power to control it because then they would have kind of a whip hand in dealing with the inter- the rest of the international system and could accumulate a lot more power. I mean, that's pretty much what we did in our prosperous populous corner of the world called North America, and so you need a balance of power to prevent that. And I think in the case of the Middle East. There is a lot of contestation around exactly where that balance lies, but I don't think that the danger of one power coming to dominate everything is as great as people realize. You know, the, the Iranians are a uh, pretty broken society. It's one of the most corrupt countries in the world. It's badly governed. Uh, it has an unpopular system of government. And a lot of the fighting that they do, they have to rely on outsiders to actually do it on folks from uh, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Syria, from Lebanon. Uh, you know, they they have a lot of problems as a country. Uh, they have a lot more people to divide their limited oil wealth among. They're pretty isolated uh, among their neighbors. And they have a pretty low-class military. There's a reason they do all this unconventional and asymmetric stuff, and it's because they're not very good at the conventional high-end stuff. You know, their Air Force is flying planes that were new when disco was new. <laughs> and so we need to really right-size that threat. You know, every country in the region has some serious obstacle that prevents it from becoming a major power. At least one of those obstacles is gonna be the other powers in the region, you know, Iran has to compete with Turkey, with the Saudis, with the Israelis, uh, with every other, every other player in the region. Uh, you know, the Saudis have a lot of problems too, mainly just that they're, they're not as big uh, as, the, as the Iranians are. Uh, you know, their, their system of government is also going through a lot of reform. They're trying to transition to a post-oil era. Israel is you know, the most capable at the high-end level, but they're small. Uh, but they're also kind of far away from some of the other players. So there's nobody who's really poised to take over. I think the region that we need to focus on the most is that western end of the Persian Gulf. It's where all the oil comes from. Uh, and you know that's still a major ingredient to the global economy. As long as nobody's about to run that whole show right there, we can pretty much sit back and uh, ensure that that continues to be the case. But because these are self-interested states, they don't want to get conquered even more than we don't want them to get conquered. And we can leverage that rather than trying to uh, take care of it for them.
0: How do you think of the risk of a state like Iran? And I think a lot of the same conversations apply to North Korea as well, acquiring a nuclear weapon. That seems to be a lot of the telos behind American, you know, aggressiveness in the region. Um, uh, is is the threat of Iran getting a nuclear weapon as big as it's made out to be? Is there any way to live in a world where that is the case?
2: How do you think about it? It's certainly a threat. It's it's better to live in a world with fewer nukes than a world with more nukes, and especially more nukes in more hands. And we might see some of the other states in the region try to acquire nuclear weapons uh, if that were uh, if they were to acquire it. However, uh, n- nuclear weapons are kind of like. Uh, Kind of like a gun being pointed at you when you when you have them and you suddenly are are faced down with these other nuclear powers that are posing existential threats to you. uh, It really has a clarifying effect on the mind, and ultimately, within uh, within a few years of nuclear acquisition, a lot of nuclear powers uh, have had some sobriety injected into their foreign policy, especially as regards other great powers. For that very reason. You can't afford to do crazy stuff. You can't afford to take huge risks uh, as reliably as you can when you don't have nukes. So, they can actually uh, create some, some challenges for countries that have them. Uh, they are not just a security asset. They're also not good for doing coercion, for making other countries do what you want them to do. They're mostly good for deterrence, for keeping other countries from invading you or nuking you uh, because those are existentially dangerous things. There's a great book uh, on nuclear weapons, uh, Nuclear Weapons and Coercive Diplomacy is the title by Todd Sexer and Matt Fuhrman, uh, two academics who have, have taken a look at a lot of these cases of states with nuclear weapons, trying to push around other states, including states that don't have nuclear weapons. And they found that, look, it's not actually that much of a coercive asset. I mean, we still have a lot of problems in our foreign policy, even though we have nukes. Russia doesn't get everything that it wants, even though it has a lot of nukes. China doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. And it's because it's hard to credibly risk existential threat, to risk your own destruction for something, for instance, that you've just conquered, that you've been living without for decades, hundreds of years, to then say, I'm going to nuke you if you try to take this thing that I took back. It, it just is not uh, a very convincing argument. And so nukes are not as much of an asset to states as, uh, as you would think. And ultimately, our posture is going to be what it already is, which is deterrence.
1: So- Staying on the topic of the Middle East, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, Biden's position uh, on Afghanistan and the withdrawal uh, of American troops here later this year. Uh, there was an interesting piece in uh, the gray zone about how um, Biden is not, you know, he, he is pulling out U.S. troops, but that a lot of that responsibility for security in the region is being uh, shifted to like private contractors and mercenaries and that sort of thing. Um, and really just kind of shifting responsibility from the U S military to these private organizations without accountability. Um, what do you, what do you make of that? And, and, and what's the way
2: forward for America in the middle East? I don't expect in the case of Afghanistan, that there are going to be a lot of contractors sticking around after we withdraw simply because, uh, the Afghan government is not going to be as reliable a protector of those contractors as, as we are. Uh, I think it would be a similar story if we withdrew from Iraq. Um, a lot of the militias and mercenaries are actually local in, in many of these countries that are being hired up um, to do tasks for the government, uh, the government of those countries. I, I don't expect that there's going to be a major ongoing uh, U.S. aligned mercenary presence Uh, In several of these countries that we're withdrawing from because also mercenaries cost a lot of money. And in a lot of these countries, there's a lot of uh, desperate people who uh, are pretty easy to hire up uh, if you need uh, if you need people with guns to go do something. So I'm I'm uh, skeptical of that narrative. I think there certainly has been a lot of privatization in the national security state that has happened. But I think that particular problem uh, is likely a bit overstated. Mm.
0: How do you think about um, the withdrawal more broadly i i feel like you know foreign policy restrainers especially when it comes to this part of the world are sort of you know uh, uh lucy snatching the football away in a lot of cases you know oh, we, we promised we're going to withdraw this time are you actually confident that we're going to be out of afghanistan come you know this time next year or uh, is it going to be the same story extensions delays renegs
2: i'd say i'm 80 20 Confident that we're going to be out of Afghanistan in the particular case of Afghanistan, just because the, a lot of the rhetoric that Biden has been using on it has actually been pretty good. Uh, you know, he's been talking in terms of American national interests, in terms of how much effort we've already put in there, in terms of the tremendous cost that we have paid. You know, mentioning his own his own son's service in the uh, in the Middle East, and so I think rhetorically he is uh, positioning himself to be hard to attack on that issue. And I don't think there's going to be a unified Republican opposition to it because there's also more intellectual diversity in the Republican foreign policy debate these days. And I don't think many people are going to see it as a winning issue uh, to say, oh, man, we withdrew from Afghanistan. The only way that that's going to happen is if there's a terrorist attack. Uh, And even then, it would have to be convincingly linked to Afghanistan. And I think that's pretty unlikely. A lot of the terrorist threat that we see is homegrown. Uh, you know, it's people who are here are radicalized here. It's really hard to get from rural Afghanistan to downtown New York, and so that's a uh, that's gonna, just going to be a big challenge uh, for them. So I, I think politically, uh, Biden has uh, made some uh, some moves that make it, are going to make it hard for him to go back. So I, I think in Af- in the Afghanistan case, I'm optimistic. In the case of Iraq middle of the road uh, you know I, I think that a lot of the folks involved in the policy there might want to be sticking around trying to shape things uh, shaping is another DC euphemism for <laughs> uh, being involved being uh, having a lot of forces there in harm's way potentially getting shot at um, that that situation is a, is a much tougher one and there's been a uh, transformation slowly over the last several years from fighting Isis there to containing Iran, uh, which is a much uh, a much taller bill. We don't have the forces to do it there. Uh, We don't have the uh, the partner government doesn't really have any desire to do that beyond uh, putting some 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 limits on Iranian power. And in the case of Syria, uh, I would note that at the uh, Democratic National Convention, uh, they had the former special envoy for Syria talking about how bad it was that we had withdrawn, uh, from there. And then we didn't actually withdraw, but, uh, he's now involved in the policy process. So I'm guessing that we are still going to be in Syria for at least another two years. Wouldn't shock me if by the end of a, uh, a Biden term, we are still there.
1: Yeah. So, um, want to ask you, uh, a little bit about how basically how people can get involved with your organization and, and other organizations like it uh, if they're not looking to get into the blob space. Um, how can people you know, get involved in foreign policy on the right side of things?
2: Yeah, we'd love to be an asset to people. Uh, the John Quincy Adams Society, our website is jqas.org. We've actually got a, a conference coming up in June Uh, It'll be that's on our website, too. We've got a lot of the top IR scholars. A lot of really interesting thinkers are going to be speaking to our audience. We're going to have some professional development stuff, some campus leadership development. This one's going to be primarily geared towards students. But if you're an early career professional, again, just go to our website, sign up. Uh, You can shoot me an email, john.gay at jqas.org. I'm happy to uh, to talk to anybody. Uh, about this stuff and help folks uh, get rolling on their career. We have a newsletter that we send out every week that has a huge roundup of uh, job openings that we've kind of handpicked from around the, uh, the foreign policy scene that you can sign up on our website for. Uh, and from there, you know, we t- will talk to the individual and figure out uh, what's best for them. Have you seen an uptick
0: in the interest from people uh, in getting involved in foreign policy, maybe specifically on the right after uh, President Trump uh, first ran in 2015, 2016?
2: I think that's the case. And I think it has certainly made it more acceptable in circles on the right to have uh, interesting non-blob views on foreign policy. Uh, It's no longer uh, for conservatives. It's no longer about trying to out hawk the other side. Uh, I think that there's uh, there are folks who are learning a, uh, a new way of talking on this uh, that are you know they're very pro troops, but I think they're making an argument kind of like I made at the beginning uh, of this episode, talking about we need to only send them abroad in defense of our most vital interests. You know they're putting their lives on the line for us and shouldn't be uh, sent abroad cheaply. And uh, you know you've seen folks like uh, like Matt Gates, uh, Ken Buck, uh, a number of others have kind of stuck their neck out on this issue. There are folks like Rand Paul who were out there a long time uh, before that, and uh, the space has really uh, really opened up. And I think the fact that you know we we live in a partisan country means that when Trump was out there doing uh, some stuff that was aligned with uh, with a more restrained foreign policy, he was queuing a lot of. Folks who are mostly just motivated by partisanship to also support that, and that's going to make it harder for the uh, you know the John Bolton's of the world to drive a really hard uh, aggressive line in foreign policy and expect that to not get uh, get disputation.
0: I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the debate stage in twenty twenty four looks like uh, for the Republicans because even in in fifteen sixteen it was sort of Trump speaking in one way and the rest sort of. Competing for just how many bombs they would drop on the Middle East, um, I, 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 in some ways, get worried because I think that a lot of the difference is going to be purely rhetorical and not substantive. But even that is, in some ways, a modest victory when people aren't trying to outgun each other on how much war they're going to get into. Um, and uh, there's, I think, there's a lot of cause to be broadly optimistic. Um, John, thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you for everything you do at the John Quincy Adams Society. And um, we can't recommend highly enough that people get involved with y'all. You you really know what you're doing in that space. and, And we're excited to work together in any way we can in the coming years.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Talking with John Allen Gay can't help but make me think about how different Generation Z and and even some younger millennials think about foreign policy when it comes to um, whether issues like the Middle East, like Russia, like China, like any of the rest. Um, We lived fundamentally different lives than our parents did, than our grandparents did. And so to have the exact same posture when it comes to foreign policy is somewhat an anachronism of how good at indoctrinating people so much of the blob is. Uh, No one has been better at talking about this than Jake Mercier, our chief creative officer here at American Moment. Uh, He wrote a piece in Real Clear Defense that I think we may have even talked about on the podcast before, but I I keep coming back to it, called Generation Z and Foreign Policy, Building a Common Vision of Restraint in a Divided Era. And he sort of lays this out. He says, look, if if you don't. Uh, live in a world where you experience the Cold War or you experience the 90s and all the different conflicts that happened in Europe and elsewhere then. And if you don't exactly remember beyond just the fuzziest edges of it, what 9-11 was like to live through, you're not going to have the natural hawkishness towards all of these other nations, all these other countries, all these other conflicts across the world let say a boomer or a Gen Xer might. Um, in fact, you'll probably pay a lot closer attention to some of the domestic concerns that we have. You lived through a financial crisis or through uh, COVID-caused lockdown-caused uh, you know financial depression. Um, those tend to be the orientations that younger people have. And, and that's OK, I think.
1: Yeah, well, and I think something important to note about that, too, is that the some of the economic crises that we've lived through, you know, as as members of uh, Gen Z uh, have been caused by globalism. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they've been caused by uh, our increased interest yeah. uh, in in other countries. Yeah. You can't have
0: like, a global financial crisis unless you have a global financial market. <laughs> right.
1: Ex- exactly. Um, and I kind of noticed this, you know, and I I, I love this piece by Jake, because uh, I think it makes some really important distinctions. Um like my parents are young Gen Xers, um, so like my uh, my mom was, uh, you know, she did a, a study abroad uh, program in 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 Germany, um, and like d- distinctly remembers, you know, post um, you know Berlin Wall falling Germany, and you know for for people who came up like kind of in the Reagan era of conservatism they still very much see the world through that lens. So Russia is our number one geopolitical foe. And, you know, my, my dad who, uh, it, you know, was in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, in the nineties, uh, was still available to be called up, um, uh, after September 11th. So like even their middle East policy is, is I don't want to say tainted. That makes it sound like, I think my parents' ideas are dumb, but, uh, they, Like, that's kind of why they believe what they believe, because they came up in that era. Whereas for a lot of young people our age, kind of the consensus that I can kind of come up with is, who cares? Like, it really seems to be the way that people think about, you know uh issues in other countries now you know we talked a little bit uh about you know moralizing by our our, like betters in the foreign policy establishment and and really it seems to be resoundingly young people are like who cares you know i i can't afford to buy a house i can't afford to get married i can't afford to have like more than one kid you know i i think people have bigger fish to fry now and and that i i think foreign policy is an issue that you know is divided by generation uh, maybe more than any other.
0: I think that's exactly right. And it dovetails perfectly with a question we got from a listener. Uh, Just a reminder, you can get your question answered by us on the podcast as well. If you rate and review the podcast five stars on any platform, Uh, and if you don't feel like putting your question directly in the review, you can send us an email with a screenshot of your five-star review to podcast at AmericanMoment.org. This uh, question comes from uh, B-Dog McNug, uh, a very please don't use your your podcast review names as a way to make me say progressively more ridiculous things (laughs) i'm probably going to result in that you can just start making me read it. Yeah, I'm, I'm fully expecting you know, <laughs> a, review, uh, a review request from BOFA at some point. But anyway, um, uh, this person asked a question sort of having to do with the episode we did with Russ Vogt, who's President Trump's director of the Office of Management and Budget. You know, he, he pushed back a little bit on some of the deficit hawk concerns that Russ had talked about in his episode, which we did a little bit of a back and forth with, uh, with Russ as well. But his question boiled down to this, which is, what can the new right offer regular people economically that the left can't? I think it's a really interesting question. And one way that I like to boil it down and think about it is that the new right has a, I think, sophisticated and realistic understanding of human nature and, and what human flourishing looks like, whereas the left is now pushing a universal daycare scheme as the be-all and end-all to ensure that you know families are fully liberated from the consequences of parenthood. The right says, no, it's, it's affirmatively a good thing for you to raise your own children. And we're going to come up with ways to financially ensure that you're capable of doing that, whether that's things like expanding the child tax credit, maybe more generous family leave benefits uh, or other things that that's certainly one that I think is extremely important.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things about the left and particularly the progressive left is that it's like it seems almost so cold and unfeeling, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is a, they're, they're focused on like community, but only as a chance to have like, you know, BP sponsored picnics, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like not a, they don't really care about community or about family or about like your involvement with local church or, or, or anything like that. And I think that's something that, that the new right, uh, has particularly focused on, you know, we've had these, um, child allowance bills from, uh, senators Romney, Rubio and, and, and Hawley have all proposed their own. Um, you know, they're, they're different, uh, in, in, in a couple different ways, but I think the GOP's focus, um, on the family is, is very heartening for me as someone who like wants to have a family in the next couple of years. Um, and I don't think it's something you'll see the left, uh, taking on anytime soon, you know, like Saurabh mentioned, um, it, mainly seems to be that they want to like outsource care of your child to like Mm -hmm. cheap immigrants that they can you know import by the shipload um and you know would rather them take care of your children while you work you know five days a week nine Mm ten hours a day for a wage like what what the left wants is to import people to take care of your kids while you slave away for wages and i it's just cold and unfeeling. It doesn't appeal to me. I don't think it should appeal to anyone who wants to have a family um, and wants to be a part of their community. And I think it's something that that I've seen the right uh, do a lot better on uh, since President Trump.
0: I, I think that the immigration issue is another great example, right, is that I think that in some ways the squeakiest wheel, you know, that one uh, secret trick to make sure that you have low wage growth in America is keeping limits on your immigration levels um, by having a porous border that allows for unlimited legal, uh, illegal immigration, but also one where there's all sorts of different ridiculous legal immigration schemes, whether it's H1B, H2B, OPT, um, or stapling green cards to diplomas, as certain people like to say. Those are all things that expand the pool of available labor and necessarily drive the price down. I, I keep getting told by market mechanisms by uh, free market absolutists, but the one where they always come up with very esoteric and elaborate reasons to believe the market mechanism doesn't exist is with the labor market.
1: Yeah, I'm told. I'm told supply and demand is a thing. One yeah. time people said this. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> uh, apparently it's it's. It, it, for, for all the reasons that are a little bit too complicated to explain to you, Nick, it isn't. For, I mean, that's, that's what people say. And, and and that's the thing is is, be, is having a, a well-rooted and realistic and frankly not utopian uh, conception of human nature is what the right can offer in general when it comes to these economic conversations while being unshackled from some of the free market absolutism that has characterized the right over the last thirty to forty years. I think that we have a lot that we can say when it comes to a substantively conservative economics that actually supports families in America because that's what a decent economy would do.
1: Well and I think, you know, going back to the to the episode that we just recorded with John, I think the important lens through which to view these things is is this in the national interest, you know, for the people of the United Mm -hmm. States of America? And I think we can say wholeheartedly that unfettered legal and illegal immigration is not. So uh, I think I think that's like the only way that you can view all of these issues is like what's good for the American people? And it's it's the moral responsibility of the people in charge to be doing that. And they're not. They're abdicating that responsibility.
0: Absolutely. Well, if you'd like to ask a question like this, uh, please feel free to once again email podcast at AmericanMoment.org with a screenshot of your five-star review or ask it directly in the review text itself. We're going to go through a couple of these every week. Um, But for now, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.